Thank you, choir. Thank you, Krista. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, third chapter of the book of Romans, Paul's letter, uh, perhaps the, uh, the, many would say the treatise of the, of the gospel, the treatise of the, of the uh, Christian life we find in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. A little change of pace uh, out of the ordinary for the most part. I can count probably on one hand the, time, the times in eight years of being a pastor and 20 years of ministry that I've stepped up in front of a congregation with a message prepared that I felt that God had redirected and said, nope, not today for that one. We're going to look at something different. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. I don't like that kind of a thing, to be quite honest with you. I like to know what <laughs> I'm going to be saying and uh, be prepared for that. Well, this is one of those Sundays. And so uh, Luke up, up top there knows we're not going to be using the, the uh, principle, the truth, or the uh, the, the title that we had prepared for this morning, are looking at a different passage, Romans chapter 7. I felt in our first service, uh, just as the service unfolded and the choir sang and Krista shared that, uh, you know, God just uh, would have preferred for us to look at a different passage. And so Romans 3 is where we're going to be this morning, trusting that there's a reason for that and uh, that God has a purpose behind a little change of uh, plans that he has for us this morning. So Romans chapter 3, next Sunday, I intend to be back in the book of Acts chapter 8, but for this morning... Romans chapter 3. You know, this is a passage of Scripture that I'll just be honest with you that you, we'll go through it this morning and I'll do my best to try to unpack what we find here in these um, six verses or so in Romans chapter 3. But I'll be honest with you, the first time I went through this passage and then I really studied it, uh, it, it took me a lot of times to read through it. Uh, it is a passage of Scripture that is absolutely packed with uh, truth, obviously, but also there are deep truths that are here that I'm going to try to do my best to, to unpack and to and to, uh, to make usable for us this morning. But you'll probably read through this passage if you wanted uh, five, ten more times today and each day through the course of this week and continue to find things there that you missed the first time you went through it. It is a deep passage of Scripture, yet at the same time, it's one of the easiest for us to understand because captured in these verses, uh, we find the simplicity of the gospel message, the simple truth of the message of the gospel that even a five, six-year-old can understand. Many of you responded to it when you were that age, and yet a message that is so deep that the greatest minds in history have stumbled all over it. And so this morning, I want us to read together Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, reading down through verse 26. And what I'll intend to do this morning uh, is to unpack just a few of the key, ver- key uh, words that come out of these verses and trust that God will use them in a way that could perhaps change your life forever. And so begin with me, verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. Paul writes to the, <clears throat> to the uh, Romans and he says, but now Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Let's take a look at a few of the key verses or a few of the key words that come out of this. The first word, and you may want to jot this down, is the word righteousness. You find it at the beginning of this passage in verse 21. 
You find it at the end of this passage in verse 26, and you find it unpacked as well in the midst of that passage of Scripture, the word righteousness. That word righteousness is a very important word, and we understand why whenever we begin looking again in verse 21. It tells us that, 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 that righteousness is something that belongs exclusively to God. How does Paul reference righteousness there in verse 21? He describes it as the righteousness of God. And it's interesting that Paul would start there in that passage because at the very beginning what he does is he paints a picture for us uh, and he paints a very clear picture of who has righteousness and who does not have righteousness. Uh, who does have righteousness is God himself. Who does not have it are those that he's created, meaning people. <laughs> and so for each of us in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness apart from the righteousness that God gives to us. Paul makes that very clear. And what he does is, is he paints a picture for us of where people often look to find righteousness on their own. He says, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested. You see, for, for years throughout human history, people have turned to the law. In other words, the description of what is right that God has given us. People have turned to that to try to make themselves right before God. I want you to listen real carefully because I have a feeling that there are some here that if you were to die today and if you were to stand before God, you have total assurance that everything's going to be okay because you've lived a good life. And you have a sense of expectation that when you stand before God, if he doesn't loudly proclaim your arrival, he at the least is going to give you a pretty good slap on the back and say, well done, because you've lived a good life. And when you look at your life and you look at the law that God has set up, you feel as though, you know, I've done it right. I have this list of sins that I've stayed away from. It's kind of my A-list, my top shelf sins that, that exist. A lot of other people have done them, but I've stayed free and clear from them. And you have a sense, you have an expectation that you are righteous because of the good things that you've done in life. Well, Paul blows that completely out of the water here. He tells us that righteousness does not exist in what we do. It exists in the person of God himself. And he says in verse 21 that apart from the law now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been proven. It has been demonstrated. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You see, the law does not does not give us righteousness. In fact, it bears testimony of the one true righteous Savior that God has offered, that being Jesus Christ. And Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested, demonstrated, witnessed by the law, witnessed by the prophets. And then verse 22, he tells us how to have that righteousness. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when I stand before God, I'm going to have a decent list, as you will, of things that I've done rightly, things that I've done well, good, hopefully, in up to 45 years now at least, that I've been able to see accomplished through the life that I've lived. You are just the same as me. You're a good person. You've done a lot of good in this world. You have a pretty healthy list. However, that list is going to be insufficient because that list doesn't bring righteousness to our lives. And what Paul states here at the very beginning of this passage, uh, this passage is that righteousness only exists in God and to those to whom God chooses to give it. It was proven through the person of Jesus Christ, and it comes to each life, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. And interestingly there in verse 22, Paul describes faith as being the, the avenue through which righteousness is granted to us. It's given to us, bestowed upon us. But it's the person of Jesus who is the source of that righteousness. 
It doesn't matter how much faith you have this morning. It doesn't matter how much good you do. It doesn't matter how often you've been in the church. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes you've taught. It doesn't matter if you've got the faith that is the greatest of the rest of us uh, uh, put together in this room. Your faith does not save you. The person of Jesus is the only one who saves and makes you right in the presence of God. You see, we are made right by Jesus. Look at it again, verse 22. He is the source of our righteousness. Faith is the avenue by which that righteousness is granted to us. He says, verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Who's it available for? For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Here's what's interesting about that verse. Here's the good news of that verse, part of the good news. It doesn't matter if you were born and raised right here in this country in which we live with the greatest blessings that the person could ever receive. It doesn't matter if you were raised in India, a Hindu culture, if you were raised somewhere in the Far East in a Buddhist culture. It doesn't matter if you were raised as a New Ager who believes that you are God and everybody else and everything else is God along with. It doesn't matter where you were raised. You have an opportunity to have the righteousness of God granted to you, but it only comes one way, through that relationship with Jesus Christ. And just as Krista sang, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you've experienced, whether good or bad, you have the capacity to have guilty replaced with not guilty. And the only way that is possible is because of the righteousness of God that he offers to you in exchange for your guilt and sin. And it comes only through, the Bible tells us, only through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's available for everyone who is willing to believe, who is willing to surrender to him. There's a problem, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that that verse that we all have heard so often is written in the context of the righteousness of God? You know, the Greek word for sin that we read of in Scripture is oftentimes when it's used, a Greek word that was used by archers. You may have heard this back in the first century uh, uh, period or era of time. What they would do is they would have the archer stand back at his spot, and they would place the target down in its spot, and they would have a person standing some length away, for obvious reasons, who was the spotter. And whenever the archer would fire his arrow towards the target, the aim was for that bullseye. It was for that perfect mark. But if he missed it, the spotter would call back a Greek word, hamartia, which we translate as sin, which literally means to miss the mark. And so the archer shoots the arrow. He's aiming for perfection. He's aiming for the bullseye. The spotter recognizes that he's missed that mark, and he calls back the, the Greek word that means sin. You have missed the mark. And it's interesting that God, when he paints a picture of every single one of us in regards to our standing as it relates to his righteousness, he uses that same Greek word, that word sin, that means you've missed the mark. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You know, when I was in high school, I, I ran track. I, I did sports and stuff all, when I was growing up. And, and I did track. And uh, when you're in high school, I mean, if you're, I don't know, for some reason it seems like uh, a handful do all the different events. And, and I did, even ones I wasn't good at. They'd say, hey, get in there and do this event. One of those was long jump. I was not a, I was not a real good long jumper, but I guess I was the best that our, that our school had. I don't know, which didn't say much for us. Well, the coach put me in there for a long jump, and I was just horrendous. I was terrible. I mean, I was able to jump, but it wasn't long. <laughs> they should have renamed the whole event after me, I guess. Changed it from something other than a long jump. But you think about, you know, if you were to put all of us up here on this platform, somehow, figuratively speaking, everyone who's ever lived in history, and if you were to spread us out for as far as the eye could see left and right, and if we were to stand here on the edge of this, imagining this to be the Grand Canyon, and imagining the other side being the, what we're trying to attain, what we're trying to reach, you know, if we were to get a running start, you could place me, you could place you, you 
You could even place the best long jumpers that have ever lived that won all the gold medals in the Olympics there. And there would be some that would do far better than others. But let's be honest, who's going to even come close to spanning that gap from this side to the next? None of us. Some will do far better than others, but in light of the distance from point A to point B, they all fall short miserably. And what Scripture teaches is is, is that there are some of you that live great lives, and when you put that life up against some of the other people that you know, it's going to come out, it's going to rate out a pretty good bit better. I mean, you live a good life, you have good morals to yourself, you have values that you care for, you love people, you try to do good, you live your life above reproach, you do all those good things. But in the sight of God, when that's held up against the righteousness of God, the perfection and the holiness of God, it falls miserably short. It's kind of like us jumpers trying to outdo the guy next to us, whereas none of us come close to spanning the distance. That's the way it is with our lives and God's righteousness. We fall miserably short. The Bible says it's because of sin. Every one of us has been infected by it. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how how much good stuff we try to do, we all in the sight of God fall short of his righteousness so that if we all died in that state and stood before him, there wouldn't you could collectively put all of us together, we wouldn't have an ounce of righteousness. And he requires one hundred percent to know him and to get to heaven. And so we got a real problem here. This is this is an issue. You know, the choir sings a song about guilty, just stamp it across every single one of us. Doesn't matter how far you get, we're all guilty in the sight of God. But then it begins to turn, as Paul writes in verse 24. He says in verse 23 that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, he begins to talk about what happens to the life that's given to Christ by faith. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace. You know, the word justified. How many of you have ever described that word justified as meaning just if I had never sinned? I just want to see your hands real quickly. How many of you have ever done that? Boy, fewer than the nine o'clock service. I think some of you know I'm trying to, you know, draw you in here. You know, I've used that. If I was in the Philippines and I was explaining the gospel, and if I were to come to that word justified, you know, with a language barrier, I may choose to to try to explain it that way, but it really misses the heart of what that word means in the Greek language. The word justified doesn't mean just that it's as if we had not sinned. What it means literally is to be declared innocent. It's a legal term. In the Greek language, that word that we translate as justified means to be declared not guilty. In other words, God sees the guilt that's there He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. When God looks at my life, he sees the sin. Pages and pages and pages and pages of my life that could be written about the sins that I've committed in the years that God has granted me up to even just this point. And justified doesn't mean that God turns a blind eye to the sin that's there. We are guilty, and he knows it, and we know it. He understands it full well. He doesn't play with the words. He doesn't pull semantics and try to do something kind of catchy to to make us right in his sight. No, he knows we're guilty. Being justified means we are declared as not guilty. It is a declaration that is made that changes the status of, of the person that it is declared about. And it says that we, through Christ, are justified. We are declared not guilty. This is a gift that comes by His grace. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't do anything to cause Him to give it to us. It is, we are justified as a gift by His grace, but there is a reason that that is even possible. Look at the next word, the next key word, 
is the key word, redemption. We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of Greek words in the New Testament that are translated redeem. Let me just paint a picture of one of those words, and I think it can play into this passage very, very clearly. One of the Greek words that we translate as redeem cannot be disassociated from the slave trade in the first century. And the word redeem literally meant to purchase for freedom for a price. You can see a picture of a first century gentleman whose wife, for whatever reason, has been cast up upon the auction block. A woman that he loves, a woman that he is committed to relationship with, however, she has been taken from him and is about to be auctioned to the highest bidder. It's that man who chooses to pay the satisfactory price to purchase her for himself, to set her free. Not as a slave, but as a free person. It's that Greek word we translate as redeem that can be captured here. What's the picture for us as people? God sees us held, slavery to our, held in slavery to our sin, separated from Him in relationship, in dire need of forgiveness and freedom. It's this word redemption that captures for us the picture of a Savior named Jesus who chose on the cross to pay the price that was needed so that we could be purchased back Not for the purpose of being slaves to the world, but to be set free to the righteousness of God. And when Paul looks at what was accomplished on the cross, the only word it seems that he can come to is the word redemption. That Jesus chose as he gave himself. He chose to do so so that he could purchase for himself out of the slavery of sin people that he would make righteous. As righteous as God himself. Paul goes on to say, and look at what he mentions here. He says in verse 24, we're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. You know, that's another $2 word there. We've looked at three words already, the word righteousness, the word justified, the word redemption. Write down this word, the fourth word, the word propitiation. What does that word mean? Some of you may have studied that word before. Others, it's a foreign word to you. I could get up here and speak Spanish and it wouldn't mean any more to you. You never heard that word. Don't even understand what it means. What does it mean, the word propitiation? It simply means a satisfactory payment. That's what it means. In other words, when God the Father looked at the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross with his arms spread wide and his life given as a sacrifice to redeem those who would come to him in faith. When God looked at that payment, he saw it as being satisfactory. You probably remember days whenever you were a child and you knew you were in trouble for something that your parents had found out about and you started to try to make little bargains and the way you try to bargain very manipulatively, maybe this was just me, was that you try to do things good to cover over what you'd done bad in hopes that that payment would be counted as satisfactory in your parents' eyes and they'd kind of let you cut and run. 
You, know, you knew you were dead in the water. You knew they found out what you had done. But you offered, okay, I'll, uh, I'll clean my room for a week. That's what I'll do. I'll clean my room for a week. And you got in there even right that very day, started cleaning your room like you'd never cleaned it before. But what happened was your mom or your dad or both came to you and said, I'm sorry, but that's not satisfactory. Here's how we're going to punish you for what you've done. What horrible words to hear that the efforts that we've made are not satisfactory in the eyes of those who hold all the authority and all the power. Well, here's the good news. When God the Father, who holds all the authority and all the power, looked down at His Son, Jesus, and He died on the cross, what the Father saw was a sacrifice that was made by Jesus for you and for me. And the good news is, is that when the Father looked down and He saw the sacrifice, He counted it as sufficient. (laughs) So that we don't offer sacrifices on altars anymore so that we don't trust in an offering to get us to heaven, so that we don't trust in good deeds to secure us a relationship with God. The payment has been made. It was made by Jesus who gave it to redeem us, and all who come to him in faith had the very righteousness of God given to them in exchange for the guilt of their sin and the wrath that hangs over them, and they are set free with nothing else to pay. The Bible says it is a gift, and it is by grace. How do we receive it? By faith. And so there are a couple of applications here as we begin to close out this passage. If you remember back in verse 22, we're talking about the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. Your righteousness won't get it in the sight of a God who's perfect. You need the righteousness of God. And it's not being boastful, and it is not being arrogant to say, that all those who have a relationship with Christ, who've come to Him by faith and surrender, have the very righteousness of God given to them. Of no work of their own, but by the very grace and the mercy of God. Look at what he says as we continue in verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. There's that word again. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, he did not pass judgment at that time. For the demonstration, I say, here's why, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word just is an important word. God is just, and it simply means that he judged sin. We have a word for those judges from a human perspective who turn a blind eye to one's wrongdoings. We have a word for those judges in our earthly uh, judicial system for those who choose to sweep wrongdoings under the rug to turn a blind eye to do something else to accept payment, and that word is corrupt. God had to deal with the sins that you and I and every person who's ever lived has committed. He has to deal with that sin. He has to judge it lest he become an unrighteous judge. He would bring default to his own character if he were to not judge sin for what it is, being holy, perfect, and pure himself. He has to judge sin. But what God did was, listen carefully, because some of you may be accountable for this when you stand before him without an answer on your lips, is that whenever God chose to give his son Jesus to die for our sins, not only was he judging sin in Jesus on the cross, but he was also becoming the justifier, the one who says, this one belongs to me of all who would place their faith in Christ. He judges sin for what it is because he's a righteous judge, but for all who come to Christ on his terms in repentance and faith, he becomes the justifier, the one who makes us right. 
<laughs> and I'll tell you what this does. What it should do, at least, to the two groups of people that are assembled here this morning. For those who know Jesus, it should put an attitude of praise to our lives such as has never been seen before for a God who would do this for us. Cost us nothing but our lives given in faith and surrender who on earth in their right mind who saw things clearly would not want this to take place in their life. I'm saying, Lord, you're offering your righteousness and right standing with you in exchange for my sin, and I don't even have to die on a cross to have it. Who wouldn't want that? Only those who don't want a master and a Lord in their life. And so for the group of folks assembled this morning who seem to relate all too well with the testimony that Krista shared, except for the part about Christ, there stands a Savior today who's already paid it all for you, who stands ready to take your sin and your shame and your guilt, your hopelessness, and he stands ready to remove it as far as the east is from the west in exchange for the righteousness of God that can be yours today when you turn from that sin and invite Jesus to come in and take over. And so for those who know him, boy, there's no better way for us to praise him than to praise him for what he's done in our lives through Christ. And for those who don't know him, where the offer stands ready this morning, that for the one who would choose to turn from sin and give your life to Christ, he'll change you, moving you from darkness to light, moving you from death to life, exchanging hell for heaven, and giving you a life such as you've never known if you'll only come to Jesus today. But now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed. You know, I wonder who and how many this morning would say, Brooks, having heard the gospel, and that was it. God is righteous, and we're not. Jesus died on the cross and rose again so that his righteousness can become ours. He became who he wasn't, sin, so that we could have what we don't, righteousness. And I wonder how many would say today, Brooks... When I came in, if I were to be honest, I would say that I did not have a relationship with God. But today I've heard the truth and I've, understand, I've understood the simple message of the gospel. And today I want to make a decision to turn from my sin and to ask Jesus to come in and to take over my life, believing that he's God, that he died, that he rose. Today I want to commit my life and surrender my life to him to be forgiven, saved, and made right. 
I won't call attention to you. I won't call you forward. But I wonder how many would say today, with no one looking but myself, Brooks, today I'm ready to give my life to Christ. If you could, just slip your hand up, put it right back down. Any this morning. Any at all. One, any others? Two, any others? With no one looking, I speak to just those two people. Any, uh, any others, perhaps, who desire that? But this morning, in the simplicity of this moment, God's not looking for fancy words from you. He's looking for honesty and for authenticity. And what He desires of you this morning is that in the words that, the best words that you know, in the attitude of your heart, you surrender your life today to Jesus. When I was a little boy, just eight years old, I prayed and gave my heart to Christ. And I prayed a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I know that my sin has separated from me from you. And I believe that you died in my place. Today I turn from my sin. And I give my life to you, Jesus. Please forgive me. And save me. And do with me as you desire. In your name I pray. Amen.